Mrs. Nancy Westcott of Syracuse, New York, who declares Tanlac is the greatest medicine on earth, says it built her up to where she is just brimful of new life and energy. I just think Tanlac is the greatest medicine on earth, and I can never praise it enough for what it's done for me. For two years I was in a badly run-down condition. I had no appetite, and after every meal I would be in awful distress from indigestion and bloating. My nerves were on edge, and I could never get a good night's sleep. I felt tired and worn out all the time, was losing weight, and many times I was so weak I couldn't look after my housework. I just felt miserable." Tanlac helped one of my friends so much that I began taking it, and it has certainly built me up into splendid health. My appetite is so big I can hardly get enough to eat now, and I am never troubled a particle with bloating or indigestion. My nerves are as steady as clockwork, and I sleep like a child at night. I have recovered my strength, and am just brimful of new life and energy." In fact, I feel better than I have in years. My gratitude towards Tanlac is unbounded. The above statement was recently made by Mrs. Nancy Westcott, 121 Market Street, Syracuse, New York. Hi there, this is Hugh Yeeman, and you're listening to Historic Headlines, the podcast where we gain historical insight by examining newspaper articles from 50, 100, and 150 years ago this week. There's too much confusion. I can't get no relief. Hey there, and welcome to episode 39. Going to be upfront with you, I'm doing a soft break of my no editing rule. I'm calling this a soft break because I am doing tonight's recording, unbroken, unedited, as per plan. But two nights ago, I started recording this, got about 15 minutes in, realized that I had failed to frame it in the way that I needed to frame it for clarity. And the framing that I need to be clear about is that tonight's episode is unusual. I'm going to be skipping back and forth between 100 100 and 150 years ago this week. The following... Aha, I'm getting ahead of myself. First, tea. Tonight's glass is one of my favorite blends, and it's also one of my most recent. It's two parts... No, sorry, it's three or four parts of Lapsang Souchong with one to two parts each of Formosa Oolong and Kimun, and it is delicious. Mm. So, tonight's episode formed around the kernel of an article about the Cardiff Giant. And it hit me 
just this evening that a lot of you didn't grow up in central New York like I did, so a lot of you may not be familiar with the Cardiff Giants. So I'm going to start out by reading the summary from Wikipedia. The Cardiff Giant was one of the most famous hoaxes in American history. It was a 10-foot-tall, purported, petrified man uncovered on October 16, 1869, by workers digging a well behind the barn of William C. Stubb Newell in Cardiff, New York. Both it and an unauthorized copy made by P.T. Barnum are still being displayed. The original is currently on display at the Farmer's Museum in Cooperstown, New York. So here's the article that, that got me started on this. Again, this is from 100 years ago this week, uh, the Syracuse Post-Standard, Saturday morning, May 21st, 1921. Recalling the great fake. Sweet are the uses of publicity, as Shakespeare did not say. The Iowans are more alert in realization of advertising opportunity than New York. The advertising clubs of Iowa have held a ceremony, probably more impressive in the published description than it was in fact, at the birthplace of the Cardiff Giant. The purpose was to emphasize the necessity of truth in advertising, and the giant was described in the funeral oration as, quote, the last remains of fake advertising, unquote. The giant was a daring fake, but he is not a vindication of the ad club's motto, truth in advertising. The Cardiff fake paid the fakers well. The giant was cut from gypsum rock near Fort Dodge, Iowa. It was buried on a farm near Cardiff in 1869. It was exhibited with so great profit that P.T. Barnum, after trying to buy it, had a copy of it made. The fraud was discovered several years later, after scientists had so disputed its origin that Andrew D. White confesses in his autobiography, at no period of my life have I ever been more discouraged in making... Right and reason prevail among men. Mm. Mm. The two giants have continued to wander. One was held in this city for freight charges when a showman was trying to make some money out of exhibiting it. One has got back to Fort Dodge, it appears, somehow. What a pity it or its copy... We doubt if anyone today can tell which was the authentic fake, cannot be toted back to Cardiff to rest in its adopted home as a continuous reminder of the gullibility of human nature. Why should Fort Dodge have all the glory of humbuggery? Hugh here. So again, this is a hundred years ago, and these people are looking back fifty years into their own history at the Cardiff giant by way of this quote-unquote ceremony that these advertising men in Iowa put on. This seemed so ridiculous to me that I had to follow up on it. And besides, I've been hearing about the Cardiff Giant from the papers of 150 years ago anyway. Uh, the sensation of the discovery of the giant, and then the following sensation of the hoax 
has died down by 1871, but it was big enough that it insinuated itself into the cultural fabric to the point where it just comes up in the media churn mostly as the butt of jokes. I'm cutting here back to April 29th, 1871, in the Elmira Daily Advertiser. The Cardiff Giant having played out, Syracuse is now excited over a mongrel whale, which is on exhibition in that city. So again, butt of a joke. This is from the Sandy Creek News of May 6, 1871. One of the original proprietors of the Cardiff Giant is making some interesting revelations concerning it. He says that while the man who conceived the fraud was looking for a place to plant his giant, he visited sites in Lee, Stockbridge, and Great Barrington, Massachusetts, and decided to sink the petrifaction near the latter place at the soda springs known as the pool but on going out to the place of birth he considered the expense of transportation too great and so berkshire lost what onondaga gained hugh here so in that case it's just a sort of uh, scrounging through the detritus of this news story to get a you know, squeeze a little bit more uh, eyeballs on advertisements out of that sensation as the the uh, the perpetrator of the scam graces the news with some uh, remembrances. Now I'm going to go back a few more years to 1913. This is from the Dryden Herald of Dryden, New York. Now the only reason I found this was because it happens to have the word advertising. In it. And I was searching for more stories about these advertising men in 1921 doing their fatuous little uh, ritual around the uh, Cardiff Giant. Uh, and I'm reading this just to give you uh, a summary of that one chunk of the history of the Giant, which seems to have been obscured uh, by 1921, that being the return of the Giant back west. Cardiff Giant goes west. Syracuse man sells famous fake to Iowa businessman. The Cardiff Giant is going west and into the advertising business. E.S. Calkins of Syracuse has sold the famous hoax to a syndicate of businessmen from Fort Dodge, Iowa. Gypsum is the principal product of Fort Dodge, and as the composition of the giant is said to be gypsum, the Iowa men hit upon the scheme of using the figure as an advertising <clears throat> excuse me advertising medium for the city's industries mr calkins exhibited the giant at dryden fair last fall and has lately returned to syracuse after a long trip on the road he said that he had made about $6000 in gate receipts on the trip the price paid for the giant is said to have been $10000 Hugh here. I'm going to get back to some more stories on those advertising men gathering around the Cardiff Giant in Iowa right after this brief commercial message. Feel old? Overwork, worry, anxiety, or sorrow undermines strength and health. These causes contribute to kidney trouble and weak or 
Diseased kidneys make one feel old in middle age. Foley kidney pills help weak, overworked, or diseased kidneys and bladder so that the system is free from waste and poisonous matter that causes one to feel old, tired, languid. They banish backache, rheumatic pains, sore muscles, stiff joints. Mrs. J.D. Miller, Syracuse, New York, writes, For many years I suffered with kidney trouble and rheumatism. I had a severe backache and felt miserable and all played out. I got to a place where I had to do something. After taking two bottles of Foley kidney pills, I can say my backache is gone, and where I used to lay awake at night with rheumatic pains, I can now sleep in comfort and enjoy a good night's rest. And we're back. Moving on to more articles from 100 years ago this week, we land on the Buffalo Courier, May 20th. American hoax marked as end of fake advertising. Fort Dodge, Iowa, May 19th. The value of advertising was brought to the attention of delegates to the convention of the Associated Advertising Clubs of Iowa when they visited a warehouse here housing the Cardiff Giant, a great American hoax which years ago enriched its exhibitors. Symbolical of the new order of truth in advertising, a wake was conducted for the giant last night as the last remains of fake advertising. The Cardiff giant was carved 50 years ago from a block of gypsum quarried near Fort Dodge. The giant was taken to New York State and buried. Two years later, it was accidentally discovered, and the news was flashed over the country that the petrified body of a prehistoric giant had been found. Scientists declared the body authentic, and the perpetrators of the fraud got rich exhibiting the giant until a quarrel led to discovery of the fraud. The giant finally was returned to the place of its birth. There are several reprints of that same article, on the same day, May 20th, 1921, one from the Schenectady Gazette, Cardiff Giant, wake, symbolizes end of fake advertising era. The Morning Herald of Johnstown and Gloversville, New York, same day, conducted wake for fake giant, Service held over remains of fake advertising. Giant was hoax of 50 years ago. Historic headlines will return after this commercial message. Build Flesh New Way by Science How people everywhere are gaining 10 to 30 pounds in few weeks' time. Science has made many great discoveries about the human body and how to fight ill health and disease, but never before has any discovery meant more to weak and thin people than the new discoveries about the glands. Through this new treatment for thinness and general run-down conditions, which is now embodied in Glandex compound, hundreds of apparent miracles are being performed. People are gaining strength and putting on weight, almost as if by magic, almost while they wait. Here are just a few examples. Gained 35 pounds. 
My health was broken down entirely, but now, thanks to Glandex, my strength has been restored. My weight has increased 35 pounds. I can eat anything, and I feel as vigorous as I did 15 years ago, reports Mr. William H. Shirk of 237 North Walnut Street, Youngstown, Ohio. Puts on 24 pounds. I was so weak and run down that I could hardly walk. Since I took Glandex, my weight has increased 24 pounds and I feel as strong as an ox, is the statement of Mr. George F. Hervey, 136 Bond Street, Bridgeport, Connecticut. 13 pounds in month. Four days after taking Glandex, I noticed a big improvement in me. My appetite picked right up, and I began putting on weight. In one month, the scales showed an actual increase of 12 pounds, says Mr. William McClelland, 143 Berkeley Street, Boston. Gains 23 pounds in 35 days. Since taking Glandex, my wife looks, acts, and feels 30 years younger, having gained 23 pounds in 35 days, states Mr. Timothy A. Pleasant to Mariana St. Lynn, Massachusetts. Weight increases 15 pounds. I have only taken three bottles, but my weight has increased 15 pounds, and my strength is as good as it ever was says Mr. John J. Leamy, 306 Van Buren Street, Syracuse, New York. At 75, gains 10 pounds. Although 75 years old, I have gained 10 pounds thanks to Glandex, and I now feel as strong as I felt years ago, reports Mr. Andrew Cameron, 54 Howard Street, Albany, New York. Gains 38 pounds in six weeks. I lost weight steadily for two years, but since taking Glandex, my weight has increased from 135 to 173 pounds, or an increase of 38 pounds, is the remarkable report of Mr. Lester W. Davis, 250 Bordic Ave, Syracuse, New York. Amazing results everywhere! The reason Glandex brings such amazing results in so many cases is because it helps build up run-down glands, which science now says is the cause of many run-down conditions. Glandex feeds run-down human glands with extracts taken from the glands of vigorous sheep and cattle, practically on the same principle as recharging a storage battery, also contains iron and other well-known health builders. If weak, pale, thin, or generally run down, try this remarkable tonic. Brings results, or your money back. Has helped thousands to regain health and strength. Try a bottle. Sold at good druggists everywhere. Glandex Compound. New gland tonic for run-down people. We now return to our show. Moving on to the Syracuse Journal of that same day, Friday, May 20th, 1921. Cardiff Giant figures in ceremonial wake of Iowa advertisers. Fort Dodge, Iowa, May 20th. Advertising men of this state virtually sung a dirge 
over the remains of fake advertising Thursday night. The remains were those of the Cardiff giant, which for a time had Syracuse, New York, and the rest of the nation guessing. The Cardiff giant was carved some years ago from a block of gypsum, yada, yada, yada. Uh, the reputation of the giant became nationwide. P.T. Barnum attempted to buy it and, when unsuccessful, had a duplicate made, claiming it was the original. And then the bit about the quarrel among the exhibitors, and uh, the giant eventually was returned to the place of his birth and uh, secluded in an old warehouse here. So that's a shortened variant on that same article that appeared multiple times. Same day, Malone Evening Telegram, Malone, New York. Yesterday at Fort Dodge, Iowa, the delegates to the Convention of Associate Advertising Clubs of Iowa visited a warehouse where the Cardiff Giant was housed and a wake was held over the remains as the last remainder of successful fake advertising. And it goes on to a brief history. Now we're skipping forward today to the Madison Daily Ledger of Madison, South Dakota. This one is almost identical except it has one slight addition that the writer of the article must have stuck in there because they, they had a little bone to pick. The giant was taken to New York uh, two years after burial. It was accidentally discovered. The news got out. Uh, here's the part that they added. Eminent scientists of the day declared that anyone doubting that the stone man had once lived merely displayed ignorance. So that's clearly a, uh, an, well, not an embellishment, but a, uh, a flourish by the writer. They th thought it important to add that little fact because nothing sells news like giving people a chance to say to themselves, oh, the scientists really don't know anything. Sound familiar? Skipping forward to May 23rd, the Long Island Daily Press. Some of our older readers may recall the stir made by the discovery many years ago of the famous Cardiff giant. At any rate, admirers of Mark Twain will recall the use he made of an opportunity for the style of humor with which he was gifted. A Fort Dodge, Iowa dispatch says, and then it goes on to the same article, The next day, uh, the evening leader of Corning, New York. Look who's here, friend Cardiff Giant, Onondaga's own prehistoric man, well-remembered here, is brought to light in Forest Dodge Warehouse as fake ad exhibit. Memories of Corning men were stirred here yesterday when word came from Fort Dodge, Iowa, of a wake held by the Associated Advertising Clubs of Iowa over the body of the Cardiff Giant, the great American hoax, as the last remains of fake advertising. One night, fifty years ago, an eerie train brought into Union, New York, a mysterious crate old residents recall. This crate was loaded into wagon, drawn by six or eight teams, and hauled through Maine and 
thence north through the state into Onondaga County into the town of Cardiff. All the traveling was done by night, and all was conducted with the utmost secrecy. Two years later, the world was suddenly surprised with the announcement that excavations in Cardiff had brought to light the petrified body of a prehistoric giant. Scientists examined the body and declared it authentic. Those behind the project received much publicity and money in exhibiting the giant. Finally, there was a quarrel, and the story was out. The Cardiff giant, it was learned, was carved carved out of gypsum quarried near Fort Dodge. It was a great hoax, but it gained the attention of the world. The advertising men meeting in Fort Dodge were shown the giant now reposing in a warehouse, and the value of advertising was brought to their attention. Symbolical of the new order of truth in advertising, the members of the association conducted funeral services over the body of fake advertising as typified by the giant. So that's got a little more of a local angle, uh, adding some of the lore about the discovery of the giant. Uh, I take it that uh, the giant, the the uh, hoax, was brought to light, at least in part, because people remembered that mysterious package being shipped. Now, we go forward to May 26th, the Tully Times of Tully, New York. Cardiff Giant figures in ceremonial wake of Iowa advertisers. That's the same article. So, does this blow your mind the way it blows my mind? This is 1921. In 1921, a bunch of advertisers got together for this fatuous silly little pantomime of patting themselves on the back and giving obsequies over the quote-unquote death of fake advertising and uh, representing the current standard of, quote, truth in advertising, unquote. And I, I just could not even begin to put into words my amazement at their brazen ludicrousness. Uh, ludicrousness. Uh, See, I keep repeating 1921 because I've been following along with newspapers from 100 years ago, and the advertising campaigns of this time, the scope of the grifts are so far out outside anything I could have ever imagined. It absolutely beggars my imagination. The energy and expense that these grifters went to to orchestrate these vast nationwide campaigns for their patent medicines, I, I can't possibly overstate the magnitude of the grift. Speaking of which... Historic headlines will return after this message from our sponsor. Fainting and dizzy spells. The cause of such symptoms and remedy told in this letter. Syracuse, New York. When I commenced 
the change of life, I was poorly, had no appetite, and had fainting spells. I suffered for two or three years before I began taking Lydia E. Pinkham's vegetable compound and the liver pills, which I saw advertised in the papers and in your little books. I took about twelve bottles of your vegetable compound and found it a wonderful remedy. I commenced to pick up at once, and my suffering was relieved. I have told others about your medicine and know of some who have taken it. I am glad to help others all I can. Mrs. R. E. Deming, 437 West Lafayette Ave, Syracuse, New York. While change of life is a most critical period of a woman's existence, the annoying symptoms which accompany it may be controlled and normal health restored by the timely use of Lydia E. Pinkham's vegetable compound. Moreover, this reliable remedy contains no narcotics or harmful drugs and owes its efficiency to the medicinal extractives of the native roots and herbs which it contains. We now return to our show. Before we get on to more detail about one of those extraordinary patent medicine ads, I want to share with you some articles about why the uh, Cardiff Giant hoax was already on my mind. Again, these articles are from 100 50 years ago, uh, the last couple of weeks. First, we have uh, the Syracuse Daily Standard, Saturday, May 13, 1871, bristling with indignance at the jokes other papers had made about its claims of a giant snake in Baldwinsville. Listen for the Cardiff Giant reference. More about the monster snake! Darwin, Huxley, and Sedgwick on snakes. No hotel near the pond. Confirmatory facts. We note with exceeding regret the thrusts made at the character of Onondaga County by sundry papers published in this state, insinuating that the Cardiff Giant discovery is a parallel case with the recent finding of the Baldwinsville Serpent. The giant story is familiar to all, but when the snake at Smith's Pond shall have been captured, then tame doubters can have an opportunity of seeing animate instead of inanimate matter. Accumulative evidence pointing to the absolute existence of the monster in Smith's Pond is cropping out day by day in a manner not to be questioned by the most sagacious skeptic. All admit the pond is the home of a multitude of very large water snakes, and from year to year large snakes have been killed on the borders of the stream. Why, then, need any sane man doubt the truthfulness of our recent article relating to the immense snake seen by Mr. Daggett last week? We have been poring over Darwin, Huxley, and Professor Sedgwick's works, and learn that large snakes can and do exist in cold climates that plants grow in icebergs, and that cold latitudes produce living existences of immense dimensions. This huge snake in Smith's Pond has beyond question grown up in the vicinity of the pond, and there is nothing improbable in the story that he is from 18 to 20 feet in length. From our interviews with gentlemen here of unquestionable veracity, 
they express their entire willingness to produce affidavits confirmatory of the great size and weight of this monster snake. A method of capture has recently been devised by which four enterprising gentlemen hope to succeed in taking the serpent, not dead, but alive. The pond will be drawn off. The innumerable holes in the banks will be closely watched, their dimensions taken, and it will be further ascertained whether they indicate that they have recently been used or not. All agree that the serpent must in some way or another be captured at whatever expense. More late facts go to prove that Mr. Daggett and others are not mistaken about the immense size of the snake and hold themselves in readiness at the proper time to make affidavits giving facts that cannot be put aside. For prudential reasons, we yield to the earnest solicitations of a number of gentlemen here not to forward you at this writing some startling facts relative to the monster snake which we have in hand. Smith's Pond is in Van Buren, not Lysander, nor is there a hotel near the pond. Besides, Baldwinsville is a temperance town with a population of, say, 4,000. The editor of the Utica paper must be familiar with snakes in his boots, so graphic is his account relating to that subject. Meantime, there is no abatement in the excitement relative to the serpent, and a large number of people continue to visit the pond. The owner of the pond himself is one of the gentlemen who take an interest in the capture of the snake. Telegrams have been received here from shrewd New York speculators asking for all the particulars relating to the snake. The propositions of those gentlemen who want to buy an interest in the monster have all been rejected for the present. More anon. Seneca. Hugh here. So that was the first article that I noticed about this supposed giant snake in a pond in Baldwinsville, and it leapt out at me because this was nearly two years, well, going on two years after the original uh, breaking of the story about the Cardiff Giant, and they were still making references to it, and people were drawing connections, and once bitten, twice shy, clearly. Uh, it, it sounds from these articles like people read these news reports about the giant snake in Baldwinsville, and they thought to themselves, oh, yeah, no, we're not going to get fooled by another uh, cryptid. So, screw that. This is from the Evening Courier and Republic of Buffalo, uh, May 10th, 1871. A snake story. Ever since Baldwinsville was the home of the celebrated showman, it and its vicinity here had a reputation for the production of wonders and curiosities. The last excitement is the discovery in Smith's Pond of a snake estimated to be 18 to 20 feet long and at least 200 pounds weight. It was first seen in 1865 and has since frequently made an appearance to reliable witnesses, uh, reliable citizens. With the Cardiff giant, the Baldwinsville snake evidently escaped from the collection of the late A. Ward. Hugh here. So I've got a ton of articles about this Baldwinsville snake. I'll probably do a separate article on that later. I'm, I'm more or less legally obligated to do a podcast episode on this giant snake because it, it qualifies as cryptid. So how can I not? Uh, but I'm only going to uh, read the ones that make references to the Cardiff giant uh, for the purposes of tonight's episode. 
Auburn Daily Bulletin, May 22nd. The Syracuse papers reaffirm the existence of the Great Snake in Smith's Pond near Baldwinsville. The monster has been known to reside there for six years or more, but as to his form, size, or appearance, all has been mere conjecture until, within a few days past, when he took occasion to show himself. He is described as about the size of a telegraph pole, and the space which he occupied while basking on the shore is found to measure exactly 14 feet and 6 inches. There was also a considerable considerable portion observed under the water, which showed no diminution in size, from which it is estimated that the entire length is at least 25 feet. The color of the serpent is black, or nearly so, except along the underside, which is of a purplish tinge. The water of the pond is to be drawn off this week, and his snake ship secured if possible. Barnum has already offered $1,500 for him if taken alive, but other parties are ahead of the showman, and the snake, if captured, will, like the Cardiff giant, fall into the hands of private parties. We are still impressed with the suspicion that his snakeship belongs to the Cardiff family. Syracuse Daily Standard, May 10th, 1871. Note that this is another Syracuse paper that is taking the ridiculing side of this snake story uh, in opposition to the other, uh, I want to say somewhere on the left, but again, these are only approximations, just a rule of thumb. Left and right didn't mean then what they mean today, yada, yada. You know this by now. I don't need to say this. Uh, but anyway, the, the standard was poking fun at the journal. Too thin. The Syracuse Standard comes out with a column article upon the discovery of an immense snake in the town of Baldwinsville, the dimensions of which are almost beyond calculation. This monster devours turtles, uh, muskrats, neighbors, geese, and even sheep have been missed and are supposed to have found a warm reception in His Majesty's stomach. He is supposed to have escaped from some menagerie which has, which has passed in the neighborhood of Baldwinsville and has occupied a little pond ever since. We take little stock in this scaly sensation. It savors too much of the humbug. We can trace the lineaments of the Cardiff giant in the features of the story. Now it may be that Baldwinsville has a snake. If so, therein hangs a tale, and if coming from any other portion of the country, we should not hesitate in giving due consideration to the report, but the unreliable reputation which Onondaga County has acquired in the past arouses our suspicion, and we are prepared to see the fulfillment of another humbug. Oswego Times. Hugh here. I misspoke at the beginning of that article. This was actually the standard, which was on the We Believe the Snake Story side, and uh, the standard was uh, reprinting an article about the standard from the Oswego Times. So, like so many articles of this era, the standard is actually 
reprinting an article that's um, against them as a way of saying, look at what dicks these guys are. Albany Morning Express, Monday, May 22nd. The Syracuse papers reaffirm the existence of the Great Snake in Smith's Pond in Baldwinsville. That's the, the same article that I read a couple of minutes ago. Historic headlines will return after this message from our sponsor. Mrs. Reifenstein, aged 67, gains 25 pounds, declares she would like to put a bottle of Tanlac in the hands of every sick man, woman, and child in this country. Never saw its equal. I am 67 years of age, but in all my experience, I have never known a medicine like Tanlac. Think of it. At my age, to gain 25 pounds in weight, but that is just what I have done, said Mrs. Emma Reifenstein of number 337 Webster Avenue, Syracuse, New York. If I had it in my power, she continued, I would put a bottle of Tanlac in the home of every sick man, woman, and child in this country, for I know what this wonderful medicine would do for them. For almost two years, I was almost a nervous wreck. I did not dare to leave the house or even go uptown unless my husband went with me. I was afraid to even cross the street and had a feeling of dread all of the time. My stomach was weak and easily upset. For days at a time, I would go without solid food. I could not rest at night to do any good and felt tired and worn out all of the time. Some days I could hardly drag myself across the room, and was so weak and miserable I was ready to give up. My health is fine now, and I eat anything I want, and never have a touch of indigestion. I have never slept better than I do now. My recovery is the talk of our neighborhood, as it was generally believed I could not last but a few weeks longer. This grand medicine has brought me health and happiness, and I just can't say enough in its praise. Mrs. J. Reifenstein, in commenting on his wife's statement, Mr. J. Reifenstein, in commenting on his wife's statement, said, Yes, her recovery has been a happy surprise to us all. A few weeks ago, I had no idea she would be able to pull through. But now she is in better health than I have ever seen her, and the credit is due to Tanlac. We have been married 52 years today, and I don't believe I have ever seen her looking any better. Tanlac is sold by the leading druggists. Hugh here. So obviously, by now, you should realize why I'm reading all these patent medicine ads. This is to demonstrate the sort of advertising campaigns that were common as dirt 100 years ago this week. Every single one of those ads that I read during this episode was printed on the same day. And I want you to understand my meaning. Those are four separate ads, and those are only an infinitesimal fraction of the unbelievable preponderance of patent medicine ads that filled newspapers across the country day in and day out with exactly those same types of testimonials from people in cities across the United States. At first, 
when I encountered this particular ad, I wrote the following in my Syracuse history group. I've never seen anything like this. Uh, 100 years ago today, this advertisement appeared in at least the three papers shown. Note that the same picture appears in each, but the typesetting is different, and the Omaha Daily Bee typesetter made an error in the product name. A brief glance at the state of image transmission technology in 1921 on the wire photo page of Wikipedia indicates that it probably wasn't transmitted electronically. The advertiser almost certainly sent a physical print to each paper that printed the ad. So I, I went on to say how I, I searched for more instances of this ad using Mrs. Reifenstein's name. And I got a huge surprise. Uh, the ad ran in at least 100 papers, and it only ran once in each paper. So at that point, I was under the assumption that, well, that doesn't make any sense. Why would they go to the expense of sending out this photo to all these different papers and then only having it printed once? Maybe the advertiser went out of business. I could not conceivably have been more wrong. Not only did they not go out of business, this was just a tiny, tiny little drop in the ocean of ads composing this Tanlac ad campaign, which must have had tens of thousands of ads over the span of years. Uh, if you go to the show notes, which I always recommend, there's a list of newspapers I found in which this same ad ran. Uh, it's a combination of Library of Congress and Fulton history, so there's probably some overlap, but uh, I think it's something like a hundred newspapers, something on the order of a hundred newspapers. And again, that's just this one advertisement with the testimonial from Mrs. Reifenstein. I have no idea how many hundreds or thousands of other people they got to do these testimonials. And the funny thing about this is this woman barely shows up in the newspapers at all outside of this advertisement. So these advertisements must have increased her fame by a factor of, what, 100,000? She went from being virtually not in the, the media at all to having her quote-unquote testimonial for Tanlac and her face printed in newspapers across the country probably hundreds of times. If I found a hundred, then there's might be a thousand that I didn't find. So... Uh, in any event, this is what made me realize the sheer Brobdingnagian scope of these advertising campaigns. And to bring it on home, I want you to, again, go to the show notes and see the image near the bottom of the page. It's really easy to find. It's the only color image. It's a screenshot from Google Maps of... A large area of northern Miami and I drew in a couple of adjacent red rectangles uh, which cover a pretty sizable portion in a neighborhood by Biscayne Bay. Those chunks of land are 
pieces of property that the originator of Tanlac bought with the proceeds from Tanlac. This guy made millions on his grift for this quote-unquote medicine, which was more or less alcohol. And this is why I say it just absolutely blew my mind. The, the fatuousness of these advertisers in Iowa piously, disingenuously gathering for the funeral of fake advertising and to drive home their, their hallowed purpose of truth in advertising in the midst of countless advertising campaigns such as these Tanlac ads, which amounted to monumental grifts, which were doing nothing but picking up steam by this era. And now we come to the story that I found today. And if you think my mind was blown by all of that, that's, that's nothing compared to this. I can still barely get my head around this, but I am so glad that I stopped recording two nights ago because I had no idea that I would stumble upon an article which would end up serving as a capstone to this episode. This is from 100 years ago today, May 24th, 1921, Mount Sterling Advocate, Mount Sterling, Kentucky. As Mr. Hoover said, oranges, one million dollars, at Syracuse, two and a half cents a box, motors and movies, an editorial on advertising. The whole basis of national progress of an increased standard of living, of better human relations, indeed of the advancement of civilization, depends on the continuous improvement in productivity," said Herbert Hoover in a recent address at Syracuse. And Mr. Hoover goes on to say, the absorption of increased productivity lies in the conversion of luxuries of today into necessities of tomorrow and to spread those through the whole population by stimulation of habit and education. Wheat bread, railways, good roads, electricity, telephones, telegraphs, automobiles, and movies were once luxuries. They are still luxuries to some parts of the population. The business of advertising is to educate and to stimulate habits and which produce increased demand. In the course of this process, advertising reduces the cost of distribution and affects economies which make it possible to transform the luxuries of yesterday into the necessities of today. One of the strongest illustrations of the economy of advertising is reducing the cost of distribution and sales by stimulating increased consumption and is found in the cooperative campaign of the California fruit growers. Their advertising manager describes as follows the results of their advertising for which more than $1 million was spent last year. In the 12 years since the first campaign was launched in Iowa, the consumption of California oranges has doubled. 
the American consumer has been taught by cooperative advertising to eat nearly twice as many oranges as before. The expenditure of 21.5 cents a box, or about one-fifth of a cent per dozen to advertise oranges, did not increase the price. Had the orange industry remained on the old basis, there would have been no profit in growing oranges. New acreage would not have been planted. Old orchards would most surely have been uprooted and other crops planted. Cooperative advertising widened the grower's market. The cost of selling oranges and lemons through the California Fruit Growers Exchange is lower today than it was 10 years ago. And the people who have learned what an enjoyable and healthful habit eating oranges is have received a benefit without any additional cost to them. So it has been with every commodity and luxury, whether it be good foods, better raiment, labor-saving devices for the home, or fine furniture. You have learned about them through advertising. You have bought them upon the advice of advertising. You have enjoyed them and made them a part of your life through the influence of advertising. And you have paid less money for greater comfort because advertising has not only sold them to you, but to millions of others. Increased production, widespread distribution, lowers prices, and advertising aids both. Read advertising every day. It is the surest aid to wise and economical buying. It will benefit you today just as it has benefited you in the past. Hugh here. Holy shit! I, 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 I can't get my head around that. And it's not the same kind of nauseated bafflement that I got countless times when I ran into horribly, racially violent, bigoted articles from southern newspapers or from northern uh, Copperhead newspapers during the Reconstruction era. Uh, this, uh, even, even in those cases, I was shocked and appalled, but I wasn't almost existentially baffled. This, the sheer profundity of self-possessed, self-absorbed, swelled-headedness of, of, it's so far beyond confidence, but, but naivete seems insufficient. I am fucking jealous of people who could be this certain about the own, the, about the incorruptibility of their own profession. I can't help thinking of E.E. E. Doc Smith's Lensman books. They were formative uh, golden age science fiction books, and one of the things that always struck me as uniquely of that time about them was Smith's conceit that there can exist an incorruptible man that always struck me as an artifact of a time when white men were so blasely possessed of their own supremacy that it wasn't even 
remotely examined. The assumption was as foundational to them as the water is foundational to a fish that swims in it. They don't really think about it. So they had the privilege and the the overweening arrogance to, to talk like this, to think like this, to make proclamations about the wholesome goodness of advertising and, and its effects on the individual and the society in the midst of these shitty, greasy little grifts. I say little, but they were influencing the entire country and making millions and millions of dollars selling products to people who didn't need them and who were probably worse off because of them. And I will get way deeper into Tanlac in a future episode, but for now, that's the point I wanted to make about those men who gathered in their convocation of advertising warlocks around the corpus <laughs> of the Cardiff giant in Iowa 100 years ago. What truly blows my mind now, after reading that last article, is this. My God, did they actually buy their own bullshit. And it's the same thought that I have gotten periodically while reading history. Uh, did Henry VIII believe his own bullshit? I always have a knee-jerk reaction to default to a, a cynical interpretation. And so naturally my answer is usually absolutely not initially. I just assume that they were mustache-twirling to some degree and that they, they didn't believe a word they said. But then I, I read about them, and I start to wonder. And so often I land on this stunning realization that these people may have believed their own bullshit, and I am in awe and more than a little jealous of these dicks. That's all I got for tonight. Thanks for listening. And until next time, seek context. This is Hugh Yeeman, and you've been listening to the Historic Headlines Podcast. Thanks, as always, to Tom Trinisky for all his fabulous work on FultonHistory.com. Without his free repository of old newspapers, this podcast wouldn't exist. Through the air with the greatest of ease A daring young man on the dying trapeze His movements were graceful, the girls he could please And my love he stole away